Welcome to What's Next Weekly. This is a weekly podcast uh, where Kenny and I listen to the, the podcast, The West Wing Weekly. And we just uh, listen to it and uh, go go back over it and kind of insert ourselves into that conversation. You know, every time I say it, it sounds ridiculous, which is why I had to rope somebody else into it. This is not uh, a mission for one person. I've noticed you've been pretty heavy-handed in our uh, language about insisting that this podcast is not about the West Wing. And that's fine. That's fine. I don't mind uh, that insistence, but I do sort of feel like the West Wing kind of caused all this. No, truly, uh, the West Wing did uh, cause all this. I just... I. I think part of it is there's already a great podcast about the West Wing. Why am I going to make a new podcast about the uh, the West Wing? You know what we should do is we should make a podcast about that podcast. Uh, and, and here we are. Uh, we made it to episode three. This is a, a proportional response. Uh, I did. Uh, I really enjoyed this. This is funny. I'm, I feel like I'm paralleling, uh, paralleling the... Uh, is that a... Can you verb that? Oh, parallel? Par- parallel. Uh, parallel is a word in English Greek. Meaning... I uh, oh it's it's the verb of parallel yeah oh parallel really oh fantastic no ah damn no it. I made I made that up just just damn, FYI damn it okay I was kind of hoping uh, anyway I feel like I'm uh, I'm basically paralleling I'm just going to use it uh, the podcast because right off the bat they talk about how how they felt about the uh, the episode. Uh, and they both love it. And actually, this is I really enjoy this episode, and partly because of the um, uh, Dulé's uh, uh, appearance. Good point. This episode of the West Wing Weekly popped more than the previous ones. First one had that first day of school excitement. The second one had that second day of school lull where you're kind of like, gosh, I don't know if this is good or not. But the third one, they really reasserted themselves and it was great to have Dulé. Yes, the, the second episode was was kind of thin. Uh, the first episode, again, you kind of had that giddiness, like you were saying. Second episode was a little uh, thin. And again, I'm talking about the the podcast, because this is ostensibly the podcast about the podcast. Uh, and then this one, uh, just a lot of fun. This is what I was kind of hoping for when they had, uh, with, uh, when I was thinking about, oh, they were going to have guests. Uh, a lot of sharing of the, uh, you know, behind the scenes um, and what's going on and a little bit of process, uh, you know, kind of a, a origin stories. It's great to hear from Josh and Delule about what it was like to be on the set. And so I agree. I don't remember when exactly I became aware of the West Wing Weekly, but it was fun to hear about Dulé. Uh, Dulé is obviously the coolest guy in the room, and uh, it was fun to have him, but we'll get to there later. Yep. Uh, so off the bat, uh, they kind of talk about how they feel about the show. They say this is an indication of what the show is going to be. Uh, that's what Molina says, which I totally agree. Yeah, uh, it's it's the between the between the the drama and the stakes and the um, kind of the jokes and the relationships uh, starting to be built. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is this is what I'm this is what I go to the West Wing for, or what I was going to start going for the West Wing for. Yeah, that was really important to me as well that they brought together so many things. You know, a proportional response um, that goes back to Aristotle. Um, talking about proportion, um, Aristotle thought justice was proportion, p- giving people what what they deserve. You know, people should get what they deserve. And so this idea of a proportional response is really interesting in the episode. I was really impressed with the point that 
I forget which one of them brought out, but was that actually the proportional response um, filters through the whole episode, that everybody's engaged in dealing with proportional responses. Yes, exactly. I think uh, it was probably Rishi because, uh, no, I'm sure it was Rishi because that's kind of what he does. And again, that's what I actually go to the West Wing for is to get some of those uh, insights. And I don't know, I, I don't know how much of that um, Sorkin is doing on purpose. You know, sometimes we, um, as um, consumers of media or readers, or you know, as you watch a thing, we make those connections and maybe it was happening, you know, on a subconscious level. But no, it was Rishi talking about how uh, that thread kind of goes all the way uh, through. Um, in fact, he brings that up pretty quickly and then brings it up again uh, when he talks about um, Fitz Wallace and, uh, and Charlie Young and kind of the perception of Charlie, you know, as the servant, as the president. Um, and Josh Lyman asked Leo and Fitz Wallace about it. And then later Sam and CJ um, talking about, you know, perception, what it looks like and all that. Yeah, interesting. As I think about it, I don't know that, um, I don't remember if they talked about uh, whether that, whether they agreed with that idea um, or not. But certainly the characters in the West Wing did. Speaking of Fitzwallis and, and and Charlie coming into this this episode, this is the first time Fitzwallis shows up in the West Wing. Obviously, it's the first time that young Charlie Young uh, shows up in the the West Wing uh, as well. Um, and I guess this had to do with the. Um, was directly related to the NAACP threatening a boycott. Right. Really interesting. The NAACP sent a letter pointing out that essentially the only person of color that NBC had working for them on their primetime shows was a writer. And it was like one out of 190. And certainly none of the uh, actors in Leeds were persons of color. It was all white. And so this is what I mean about, I don't know that Josh Molina and Rishi Herway addressed how they felt about that issue of tokenism or not. You know, were these the right characters for the right time? Were they inserted as a type of tokenism to satisfy the NAACP? Neither of them spoke directly to what they felt about how that should play out in a TV show like The West Wing. I mean, in other words, or in the White House, um, how does race come into any of these things? And I guess uh, Josh and uh, Rishi are a diverse couple, and so are you and I, so that's good. Yeah. But they didn't <laughs> speak to whether they wanted or didn't want black men in those roles. Yeah, well... I, Melina does kind of point out, like, wow, this doesn't seem like it's shoehorned in. I think he actually uses that word. There, it, these characters don't seem, seem shoehorned in. He says uh, Charlie is like a missing piece in the puzzle. And, uh, I, well, I mean, I don't I don't have any bad feelings myself for John Amos, who plays Fitz Wallace. Have you seen Good Times? That was a reference that was lost on me. Oh, yeah. No, Good Times, working class black family in New York, I believe. Um and just it was just a family sitcom, and I remember when he when his character died on Good Times, and and how I remember feeling that uh, back there. So hey, I'm I'm happy to see John uh, John Amos in in anything. Uh, so that's how I know know them. Uh, it and to me it doesn't feel like to, to go back to to the point. To me it didn't feel like tokenism, and I'm trying to figure out like why not? Because it does seem like the way that Melina tells it. It seems like this was in direct response to that, that having these two 
uh, black actors in there. So, uh, I mean, does it feel like tokenism? I to always you? thought, no, it doesn't feel like tokenism. I always thought Amos was supposed to be Colin Powell. So it felt realistic. And in terms of Charlie, I really love the way Molina put it, that he was the last piece of the puzzle. I never thought about that, but it was true. He he fills out the lower rung of the hierarchy of the staff, but it was really a beautiful piece. And if you imagine the West Wing without Charlie, it wouldn't be the same. And so, no, I, it didn't feel like tokenism. I don't know if they ever confirm with Sorkin that either of those people were added to kind of, you know, create a impression that they were including minorities. But it is interesting. I mean, you know, I'm kind of a skeptic and I'm not that into tokenism. However, (laughs) the fact that NBC did not have any people of color in any leads and the only person of color they had was one writer out of like 190. That does sound like slightly racist, I will admit. Sure. And again, probably not on purpose, right? I mean, it's just, well, these are the people that we know and I really relate to this person. So I'm going to hire the people that uh, remind me of me and my friends. Right. And so to uh, the credit of the West Wing Weekly, I actually looked up that NAACP letter and read it. And I thought, yeah, that's a little bit disproportionate to have zero or one. To have one, that seems weird. Like, that doesn't match the uh, at least the demographic proportions. Uh, right. And then uh, the, the line that I remember that they, they quote from the letter is like, it's supposed to be like, you know, a liberal, liberal democratic administration. <laughs> And there's like there's no people of color in the cast at all. And again, I and I agree with them. I think it's both of them are a great um, a great addition. Uh, Amos has that um, that gravitas, you know, that I want from from uh, from that uh, role. And um, Charlie's, you know, the Charlie character like, not only fills out the the, the bottom rung, but kind of gives us uh, as outsiders like a look in, right? Absolutely. I loved when. I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. When Dulé Hill talked about the Charlie character was described as the kid who has always been able to see the castle, but not go into the castle. I thought, gosh, what a great writer Sorkin is to give you that little, I assume that's kind of Sorkin's little description of who Charlie was or something like that. Oh, sure. And that's really compelling. So I don't know. I mean, there's so much rich story in that issue of race and Fitz Wallace hits it in this episode, right, that he's a black guy in charge. He's the joint, he's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he says, I've got honest to God problems to deal with Leo. Uh, You know, I'm not into the optics. And it's cool. I mean, it's just really interesting to hear a guy in Fitzwallis's position say that. And, you know, he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. And so you take that as a very serious point. But, you know, it actually reminds me of another issue that comes up throughout um, Rishi's commentary. And I, it's funny, I, I was reading a book, uh, The 90s, by Chuck Klosterman, and he talks about how people in Gen X were really into this type of art, which kind of glorified in raw, messy, ugly facts. And in the 90s, we kind of loved seeing that stuff. You know, think Quentin Tarantino. It was but, kind of like a, the grunge. I, like it, it yeah. showed up in um, graphic design and topography as well. Oh, interesting. Is it? Yeah. I didn't know that. I um and but the key, one of the keys was 
You were watching it, but you weren't expected to agree with it. It was just something to consume. And then after Gen X, the idea came to be that art that didn't incorporate your ethics and your politics was a little bit irresponsible. And so I appreciated that distinction because you can see that, you know, Rishi is sometimes bummed out when they don't include enough, you know, feminist themes. And I remember, it's funny, like I went to school before that was the idea. There was, I remember when uh, in my writing classes, they would talk about how being didactic was like the worst thing you could do as an artist. Don't, you're not, you're not a preacher. Don't tell people a lesson, show them something interesting. But I realize that's a approach to art. And um, I, I, you know, it comes up here in, in the West Wing. Like, how much do you want your art to represent how you think the world should be? And how much should it be like it is or even not like it is, but simply interesting to watch for the viewer? And so Klosterman makes the point that in the 90s, we were really into that kind of thing. Subsequently, we got more into our ethics. Subsequently, we, we got more into our ethics. Do you feel like that's that that's part of one of the factors for why it kind of lasted and why people are, keep returning that's, to it? That's a great question. You know, it's funny. I almost think that he, uh, the West Wing straddles that divide a little bit because it makes you feel like you're watching a realistic portrayal of politics in Washington. But certainly it's always giving you a vision of what it should be like. And so Aaron Sorkin kind of hit the bullseye. Well, I don't know if it's the bullseye, but he hit that, uh, you know, the mid, the Aristotelian, the Aristotelian mean of being didactic and being descriptive of kind of giving you a vision, but also giving you a little bit of a picture of what real life is like. No, you know, I, I think you're right. On the whole, um, I think it it is. I mean, I think it was called a like a liberal fantasy. So it, on the whole, it kind of gives you an idea of, of of the ideal. But things didn't always turn up nicely or wrapped up in a, a nice little bow. Sometimes it was just kind of like, well, this is just the way it is. Like we can't we can't do anything about it. Well, right. Like at the end of this episode, and I don't think they touch on this, but in um, proportional response, um, at the end of the episode, Jed Bartlett like yells at Charlie and says, "I don't have time to deal with new people." You know, it's one of those things where it's kind of like, hey, white president shouldn't be yelling at young black kid because that's offensive, but it is also descriptively probably true. And you also see that that's not the nicest way for Jed Bartlett to behave. And eventually he apologizes. So I really I like, you know, maybe Aaron Sorkin might be my political philosopher because he kind of skins it just right for me. Later, Melinda does uh, talk about how good the um, the staff meeting scene is uh, because of the right. interplay of the actors. Uh, again, I mean, just, you know, such a great episode. And part of it is that uh, the acting is really good. And uh, he talks about how just between like a look and a thing here, you know, just a little subtle uh, nuance. And you already kind of have an an understanding of how these people relate to uh, one of these characters uh, relate to to one another. Rishi agrees. He says, you know, uh, suggests the director and the editor uh, probably had a lot to do with it as well. I, I, and actually, I was sort of, as soon as he said, like, the actors were, were doing this thing, I was like... Yeah, or, or the editor. Maybe they cut it in a certain way. That's such a postmodern-y point uh, that it's constructed for you to feel that way as opposed to a genuine experience that the actors were going through. And Rishi may be entirely correct that they had to edit that. You know what? Being 
kind of a traditionalist, I'm going to bet on Molina. I think it was magic in the room. <laughs> I and actually, I I kind of lean that way. There must have been some things I, I'm I'm sure uh, that the director and the editor um, also did. But I think you're right. I think they I think they blocked it. They rehearsed it. They they rehearsed it as a play. Um, so that really they just kind of had to shoot it and and get the right angles. Have you ever done any acting? It's like in high school. I you know I don't mean to brag. Uh, but I was the baker in the in Into the Woods my senior year. I don't have any baking experience, and so I don't know how blocking works. But it sounded interesting. I liked how uh, Dulé later talks about using blocking to get out of work. That's something I'm very interested in. Ah, uh, yes, uh, yeah, the Dulé school, uh, Dulé school of acting. Right. Uh, they do. Uh, speaking of more uh, more acting, uh, they talk about the scene between Leo and the president because I remember hearing a story of how the director kept like pulling uh, those the, the actors back. Like, at first they started and it was, there was a lot of yelling and then, you know, they brought it down a little bit lower and then they brought it down again a little bit lower until it was just that kind of this, just kind of intense, like, boiling uh, under the surface. Well, I can't, I can't imagine I heard that story from anywhere else besides the, the West Wing Weekly, though. Does that sound familiar? It's funny. I was literally going to ask you where you heard that because I don't know that story. Um, it's very interesting uh, and... Probably true. I mean, it's funny to hear them re-describe it. And um, I think Molina says it's pretty dramatic. And uh, I still remember that when Leo says, I will raise up an army and I will beat you. That was a point where I said, all right, pump the brakes, buddy. Come on. That's not that's a little bit much. Uh, and so it'd be interesting to hear a breakout of how that scene went down. But it's a great scene. It's a, it's a great scene. I mean, that's one of the things that Sorkin does for me is even when I'm looking at his writing and thinking that doesn't sound right to me. I still love it. Yeah, there are times where you're like, wow, that's that's a little indulgent or just just or just him having fun, I guess. Or I guess that's what I mean. Yes, by yes. Indulgent. It- um, but like you said, I, yes. uh, me, I'm like, uh, I don't care. And I think part of um, the fact that uh, um, that Leo doesn't yell that at him. I mean, his voice is raised, but it's not melodramatic. It's just this like, I'm just telling you the facts. Um, it is, I mean, it, it, the words themselves are melodramatic. His delivery was not. It's really true. And I love how throughout the episode of West Wing Weekly, they keep uh, talking about John Spencer saying, hey, we wouldn't get this even a cop show. And uh, there's something really beautiful about how all those actors related to each other. And you can hear it in all of their voices, you know, when they talk about John Spencer, like they really, really love the guy. And there's something about that. It's kind of magic when you get people together who work well together and love each other. And you still hear that. You hear that admiration in the voices of Dulé and Molina when they talk about Martin and John Spencer and so on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Not so much with Bradley Whitford. They don't see. <laughs> they seem more inclined to raz Bradley Whitford. Uh, yes. Oh, but you know they joke because they love, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, they do bring up a little bit more of um of those those parallels, right? Uh, between uh, like CJ and Sam, uh, between um. Oh, and then later on, they do talk about like Donna and Josh just kind of going in, into uh, major flirt mode uh, between the two uh, mm-hmm. to the point where you're like, I mean, like, I remember watching it and just thinking like, oh, that's fun. And I don't think, um, and maybe it's because I'm like, I was such a um, like rom-com fan. So if I hear, you know, 
flirty banter. I'm like, oh, great, I, I'm in. It didn't occur to me like, wow, this is uh, this is probably inappropriate for the <laughs> for the workplace. You know, it's funny. I'm uh, in a past life. I was an employment law attorney, and these are definitely situations that can turn very bad for the employer. But it just shows you that sometimes what's happening in real life is different than what the law wants to uh, say about it. Because I think everybody loved. The flirtation between Josh and Donna. Yeah, it was pretty over the top. I liked somebody made a comment. I think it was Melina that this is not the way you would normally talk to your boss. And certainly correct. I, uh, I it's it's funny. These thoughts that they bring to light, which are do you ever have that where it's obvious once somebody else says it, but it never occurred to you? No, exactly. And again, it wasn't uh, it was it might not have been until uh this episode of the podcast where I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a whole power dynamic there that's probably not uh, good or healthy or one of them should, you know, be promoted or move or something. Hey, and Donna gets there. It just takes seven years. It just takes seven years uh, in uh, in Sorkin's uh, exit, apparently. So at this point, uh, Josh and Rishi are deep into the podcast, so... It's about time that they mentioned Mandy. This has kind of been their, their MO. It takes them a bit. Mandolin. 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 Yes. Uh, so nice little joke there about uh, Mandy's <laughs> name, uh, which I love. And uh, and then they bring on Dulé Hill. I'd like it's basically just Josh and Dulé like reliving, you know, their their time there. It really makes me want to move to California and try to be an actor. Like, do you want to do that, Jose? Should we get in our car? one of our cars after this and drive down to LA and just see if we can make it. Cause it sounds really fun to lock the janitor <laughs> or the maintenance man or whomever in the utility closet with your other actor buddies. Like once again, as an employment law matter, not that good of an idea, but as a, <laughs> as a, as a matter of fun and kicks, that sounds awesome. Uh, no, that's, uh, that sounds great to me. I'm down like I, the whole foul game. Like I'm trying to figure out how can I incorporate that in my life now? And that's perfect. Where they would, and I'm sorry, just in case, in case you hadn't like listened to the episode recently, it's where uh, the foul game is where they they kind of they stand just behind somebody or basically try to stand in a certain way so that when the person the other person turns around, they bump into him they, and they take a charge in basketball parlance. Unbelievable. I mean, Molina sounds like he has a strong antisocial mm. streak, and I love it because. Beyond the foul game, I just wanted to do the Molina game, which is smash people's scripts as they're trying to read them. Okay, so I'm down with like the whole pranking sounds fine, but like, but that just sounds mean. Like just the whole smacking somebody's script down as you're passing by. It totally is, and I've just really admired the kind of people who can go around being mean and sort of get away with it. I've never been able to quite figure that out because when I mean, it's like. We're not friends for 10 years. And I, so I admire the kind of guy who can go walk around smacking people's scripts and I guess it's okay. I don't, I don't understand because he is, it, it's, it is, it, it's what a bully would do. But maybe that's the joke. It's like, but it's Molina. Is he really a bully? Uh, you know, so it's, so it's allowed. I don't know. But I just, I can, I can just see myself. I'm not uh, in, in any way, shape or form a, a bully. I, I would never be mistaken for a bully. I don't think. Um, but uh, man, if I did that, I think people would be like, you know, what the F are you doing? Absolutely. I, you're totally right. I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing Ellen DeGeneres does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things that, uh, that Dulé shares is his whole um, 
origin story, you know, how he uh, how he got the job in the first place. It was basically like, uh, it seemed like maybe just like a, a year, a year, year and a half or whatever. He was working with like an acting coach. And then uh, he was doing, I guess, teen movies. He, he was friends, he's friends with Freddie Prince Jr., another like kind of, you know, teen actor during that time. Uh, and then suddenly he's on like, you know, one of the, the greatest shows in the history of television. Yes, it did sound like that. Although it also sounds like he was a tap dancer. So maybe he had another uh, entree to that group. But yes, I heard that he was taking a year of acting classes in New York and then went to L.A. and then almost ran out of money and then got a job on the West Wing, which once again made me think that you and I, Jose, should maybe go to Hollywood. <laughs> At least give it three weeks. Uh, you know, I just don't think uh, I just don't think that's going to happen for us. Well, it's uh, I mean, how many times does does it that can that actually happen? Where you like almost run out of money and then you get the job? <laughs> Do you uh, know how to tap dance? Uh, I, I I don't, um, and uh, now I'm afraid. Uh, I don't know. Is that is that <laughs> that's vaguely racist that you would think I might know how to to, to tap dance? Well, as is so common these days, one stumbles into racism not even realizing it. I was simply wondering if, like Charlie, you might have another talent that would get us in the door. But, you know, going back to Sammy Davis Jr. and all that stuff, probably there is an association with being black and tap dancing. So I I apologize (laughs) to all the tap dancers out there um, or whoever else. Um, I uh, no, I, I actually it was. I was wondering, because I know you have sort of a drama background, and I wondered if you ever took a few dancing lessons. I uh, never took dancing lessons. I was one of the, I was the, in high school, again, this is the extent of my um, theater experience. Uh, I was the the singer uh, actor who could also move well, um, as opposed to the, the dancer singers who could also um, act, or the dancer actors who could also carry a tune. Um, although I do this thing with when I when I stand, uh, I often like kind of stand in what I've learned is third position, second position in ballet. Like my heel is up to my um, uh, mm. up against my my other foot. And someone did ask, "It's like, oh, you must have taken dance." And I'm like, "No, no, I'm just I'm just a little self conscious about my bow legs." And so I've been I got into the habit of kind of trying to disguise that, I guess. I never noticed you had bow legs, so you've done well with that little uh, ruse. It works. <laughs> But hey, they bring up uh, a breadcrumb that Sorkin picked up later with, um, when Mrs. Landingham dies. Yep. And the president needs a replacement. Uh, man, her name escapes me, though. But the, the gal who's... The, oh, the, sure. Deborah uh, uh, Fickinger. Um, Lily Tomlin. Lily Tomlin's character. Um, yeah. I mean, this is a moment where I'm listening to Melina. And it's funny. Like, I know the West Wing better than you. Which is... Clearly, he doesn't care. But um, there's a saying I learned from a poetry professor uh, at UNR named Gail Marie Palmeyer, who's a pretty good poet. And she taught me the saying that sometimes the poem knows more than the poet. And I thought this was a good instance of that where this bone had been sort of buried and later they came back and got it. And it's wonderful if you if you caught it. And so I I don't know if Sorkin meant for that or not, but uh, I like that Dulé got it. And it's funny that Molina missed it. Well, and again, uh, clearly Sorkin didn't like lay this first and then thought later I'm going to I'm going to kill off Mrs. Uh, Landingham. De La Guardia. De La Guardia. De La Guardia. Yes. That's a good name. It is again with the the Sorkin names, but yeah, no, I I think um, 
he just must have thought like, oh, here's a here's a a bit character or a name that got dropped that we can kind of pull back in uh, a little bit later, which I love actually because there's there are these names that get dropped, or there are these characters that kind of come in and, and leave, uh, and I don't know if we had talked about this before, but but it kind of fills out the world, right? It it kind of suggests like, oh, it's not just these people. Uh, there's other folks around. So when they get kind of roped rope back in, like when Ed and Larry, every time they show up, and you're like, oh, that's right. They do. <laughs> they do work here. They do work here. Yeah, especially Mrs. De La Guardia, uh, because, you know, apparently she's off selling alpacas, like while everybody else right. is saving the world. But it's great. It's It, it worked really well. And I appreciated Charlie pulling that out. And uh, also uh, Charlie, Dulé. And uh, Dulé bringing out, what else? Oh, that the... Proportional response came from the movie uh, The American President, that these were uh, extra pages from The American President. Right, at literal literal extra pages, um, uh, which is fantastic. I mean, th- to me, that's like, um, you, can, you can use everything, right? Uh, what's the, you can always, you, you can recycle everything. I mean, if just because you write it and you don't use it for something else, or I use the same thing, uh, you know, when I'm, uh, when I'm writing songs or whatever, like this phrase... I know it's a, it's a good phrase, and I may not use it in this thing, or I might have used it in this thing, in this one song, but actually it turned out that that was a terrible song. I might actually use that phrase again in a different song. I wonder, Aaron Sorkin really emboldens you to do that, although I had a funny experience with that in the last week. I wrote a novel about 10 years ago, and I decided to go back to it and see if there was anything in it I could use, and I found one thing and the pay the, the novel was 285 pages and i found five pages so i don't know it's uh better than nothing but i was a little bit disappointed there wasn't more that i could use most of it was stuff i i hated well i was actually thinking like wow five whole pages i was excited for you that's a great percentage uh, absolutely i'm holding on to that five pages and i'm gonna become famous uh so i was gonna do this kind of clever segue between uh your text and uh, Sorkin's text, and if you felt uh, that your text was sacred and could not be changed the way that Sorkin felt about uh, his, only because Dooley was bringing that up. He talks about how the script, um, man, it's, it's just all, you know, it's all in the words. I just need to deliver the words. There's something to be said for it. I certainly hate it when people edit my text and they don't know what I was trying to do. I once had a college editor change the line not with a bang, but a whimper to not with a bang, but I forget what, but a whole different word. And it was clear she hadn't read T.S. Eliot. Uh-huh. So there's moments. But I liked what Dulé said, actually, this is more in your ballpark, where he said it's like music. You know, you come in on the two and that's what you do. And if you do it, you know, one of the things I love about music is that when you do it right, it works. You know, if you come on on the two... It sounds right. And so I really appreciated his sense that this was like music. This was like dance. And as long as you kind of stayed on the beat, that was good. And so I don't feel like my words are sacred, but I do get mad when you screw them up. <laughs> yes. No, and that makes sense. Not sacred, but but you were going for a thing. Uh, and if you have a better idea, again, or at least this is how I feel. Like if you have a better idea, uh, great. Uh, or if you have something uh, comparable, I'm kind of like if I'm working with other musicians, it doesn't have to be my exact thing. If you have something that is comparable that that achieves the same goal, uh, great. Uh, as far as like uh, Dulé though, and, and that musicality, uh, approaching it that way, uh, that totally falls in line with the way I've heard um, Sorkin 
talk about his text, right? He kind of approaches it like the music of the words. Um, and it's, and it actually also kind of falls in line with, um, you know, I've heard Mamet feels the same way. Like just, hmm. I wrote the words a certain way, just, just deliver them a certain way. You don't have to dig too deeply into, so this actually, it, I'm sure we'll get into it when, um, when Melina uh, brings it up. This kind of goes hand in hand with Melina's um, philosophy of, of, of acting where he's like, I don't need a backstory. I don't need to figure out my feelings. I'm just going to deliver the words Lord. as they are in the text. I wish there was a lot more people like Melina in real life who would just deliver what you told them to deliver. But it's an interesting uh, idea. You know, how do you how do you approach that? I mean, Melina's approach makes a lot of sense. Um, the idea that your words are going to sort of create a uh, ethos that people can live in. Certainly, you feel that with Sorkin. Um, you feel that in the West Wing. It's hard to um, think of other people like that. But you brought up Mamet, who I love Mamet. He's got a little controversial, but he actually... I've, I've never connected Mamet and Sorkin in my mind. But now that you bring him up, uh, what, what have you seen from Mamet? Uh, you know what it is? I, I, read, um, uh, I read a book on, on, um, uh, that he wrote on uh, being a playwright into his like uh, philosophy uh, of that. And, and later on, I was like, oh, this kind of sounds like Sorkin. But again, like, so if, what do you say? Like, oh, I wish there was more people like Melina who just kind of just delivers the words where you can kind of like dwell in these, these things. Not, ev- not everybody's Sorkin. True. You know, not everybody's Mamet. Not everybody's Shakespeare. Not True. Everybody- <laughs> no, it's a great point. You're right. Like, um, if you don't have Mamet or Sorkin or Shakespeare writing for you, then maybe you should do your best with the words. But um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross was the play that I read and watched. And it actually really does have a Sorkin quality to it, maybe a mammoth quality to it, but uh, a real emphasis on the punch of every word. And it's a great, if you get a chance, Glengarry, Glenn Ross, whether the play or the movie is a lot of fun. And it, it's got a similar quality where the, the dialogue is really a delight to listen to. Although maybe only if you're a Gen Xer, if you're a millennial, you might want to steer clear. I can imagine. Does, does it not hold up You know, it's the kind of thing where Al Pacino tells you that selling timeshares is like sex. So if that makes a lot of sense to you with a lot of F words artfully dropped in, then you'll love Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Uh, Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely on my list. Um, But uh, I was like, I'll probably have to figure out, is this something I should watch with my wife if she's going to dig it? Okay, it's just uh, just you and me. We'll, We'll screen it together then. Really, I think the, the the last thing of note to, to talk about from this uh, from this uh, podcast episode is Martin Sheen can play ball. The Skyhook. You know, there's a show right now on a, a successor to the Sorkin Mammoth world called um, Winning Time by Andy McKay, and it's about the rise of the Lakers. And just recently, just recently, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar explained the beauty of the skyhook. And so it was great to hear that Martin Sheen also has the skyhook. Did you ever, back in the 80s, before Michael Jordan, there was a, there was a moment before Michael Jordan mm-hmm. when Magic and Kareem and Larry yeah. were the guys. Yep. And I had a skyhook. I had a skyhook when I was 10. Um, I don't know if it was any good. When you were 10. Oh, absolutely. You know, you just run sideways and 
throw it up over your head. That's a skyhook. And so it's uh, awesome that Martin Sheen beat Dulé Hill at basketball using his skyhook. I love it. It's classic. I mean, there's always like an old white guy at the gym who scores a lot of points. Uh <laughs> Uh, with with the skyhook because that's I don't you don't see the skyhook anymore. No. That's more of like it's an old school. It really move. is. No, you don't see the skyhook. I I haven't seen the skyhook in a while. I do. I try the baby hook that Magic did, and um, it's okay. You know, it's it's more of a it's more of a scoop rather than a skyhook, and it works fine. You don't see it a lot, but Dulé talking about I almost can't believe the story he tells, and he's telling the story in a way that he can't believe it. You're sitting there on Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House playing pickup ball with Martin Sheen and Jawan Howard. It's just, once again, Dulé Hill's life sounds so much cooler than average. I still feel like we should go to New Jersey and then go to Hollywood and try to make it because what a, what a life. Uh, we're going to take a little break, and then when we come back, we're going to we're going to talk about our big block of cheese. Uh, did you have a big block of cheese? I'm, I'm, I'm actually just asking quick before we get into it. Um, sure. I like all all of these are good, although handshakes I think may not have as much. Uh, I would love to talk about Martin Sheen and Lawrence Fishburne and Apocalypse Now and all that crap, but so so we can get into it. Um, well, I was I was actually going to make it more. Uh, it was more personal for me, where I oh. I remember growing up, growing up and and having uh, you know not elaborate handshakes, but having a handshake and not um, uh, not freaking out when I was like meet somebody. I knew how to shake their hand. And whether that was like a firm handshake or more of that bro hug or a little dab, you know, something. Do you know what I'm talking about? And now no, I, oh. I'm fully with Melina and that like when I shake hands with anybody cool, not even just black guys, I'm like, oh, shit, what are we going to do here? Uh, well, and I think I, I felt like I had that until sometime like getting out of uh, high school. And you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to blame the church. Uh, I'm going to blame hanging out with uh, mostly white evangelicals (laughs) and everybody was like a firm handshake. And now I I basically freak out whenever I uh, meet somebody, a a person of color or, or just, you know, some kind of um, some level of bro. The cool thing about being passably white is that you can always just be like, blah, 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 I don't know. <laughs> and so you can always get away with that. Yeah, I've got I've got the firm handshake and nothing else. And it's sad. No, I felt the sort of longing that Melina was touching upon, which is you wish you knew what was happening in those moments, but you really don't. Like, even if Lawrence Fishburne taught me the handshake, I would be thinking, well, is that the handshake for everybody. It's just not, it's just not. It's just even the handshake every time I see uh, Lawrence Fishburne. Exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, and so that, that, that spontaneity, um, I don't, I don't know where it comes from and I fully share Molina's sort of befuddlement and impressive, you know, uh, I'm, I'm impressed when people do it. Like you see all these shows now, actually you see it in sports all the time. Where, like, everybody comes out and they have a unique handshake. Right. Handshake dap thing. And I'm like, did they... I don't understand. Like, did they practice that? Because I would have had to practice that a bunch. I, I don't get it. So, the, that that whole world, I, I feel I feel not included in the world of cool handshakes. 
Uh, and again, I I kind of bemoan the fact that I I no longer really yeah. am, am part of that. Uh, so at the, uh, where I work, there was a guy, uh, Oscar, and he had a handshake. And so to answer your question, you you do practice it. You develop the handshake, okay. and then that's your handshake with the your uh, with your 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 pal. Uh, he had a handshake for with everybody, basically everybody in the store, uh-huh. um, which was uh, which is great. Um, and it was kind of like this bonding thing. And you may have seen uh, the, uh, the, you know, the the videos of teachers who have like a handshake for all of their yeah. students. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So um, <laughs> my handshake, and I'll try to describe it to you so that, because I know this is an audio, um, you know, medium. My handshake that he eventually developed with me was to uh, look me in the eye and then uh, take my hand firmly and then shake it once and then say, Jose, and that was that was the handshake. Huh. That's interesting. It's a little elaborate. Do you need me to repeat that? No. He he would look okay. I don't know. You know, I already stumbled into this earlier with the tap dancing, but like, I feel like he's treating you like a white guy. You know, I um, I felt like he was treating me with respect and deference. Oh. That's because I I was I'm I was probably like twenty years his senior. Ah. Uh. So. At least that's how I took it. That's I don't nice. Think he was taking it. Uh, I get it. I don't think he was treating me like uh, either a white guy or, um, you know, uh, an unhip uh, dude. Uh, although now that I say that, I, man, that just came out like a, an unhip dude. All but right. here's the other. Here's the other thing. Um, sometimes I, I realize I'm in the middle of this um, game. Uh, the game, a game uh, that I that I sometimes call, "Am I black today?" Uh, right. So I'll meet somebody, you know, who uh, either is black and may recognize the black in me the way that I recognize the the black uh, in them. And then sometimes they don't. But I get that the same thing with the with Filipinos, because, again, I'm like I'm I'm mostly Filipino, but I'm also part black. Um, and it's a you know, and sometimes it's a, it's like, oh, well, today I'm black. And it, it, and it it's usually indicated by either a, a head nod or or the handshake. Do you have a preference? Of being of how I'm uh, perceived, or yeah, do you do you like feeling black? Do you like feeling f- Filipino, or is it just today I'm one of those things? You know, I well, that is a good question. I'm I just I generally just identify as Asian. Hmm. Wow. And I'm also uh, I'm also black. Again, and then depending on context or if I'm with family, you know, um, uh, you know, we might use the the Blasian uh, moniker. Hmm. Um, I have a, like I have a, a couple of uh, a few Blasian cousins. I, I'm or sorry, Blackapino. I don't know that phrase. Can you spell that out? Elaborate. Yes, uh, it's it's a it's a terrible portmanteau of black and Asian. Oh, okay. And by and by terrible, I just mean is sure. You know, it's just not very clever. Right. It's just Blasian, uh, Oregon, or Blackapino, which is actually oh. um, more fun. Lord. to say. <laughs> no, it's just complicated. But that's interesting. So. Yeah, you've got kind of these different filters on your personality and where you come from and and all that stuff. How does that um how does that race stuff like fit into your self-identity? This is I, I I'm asking you a deep question. Like do you go around thinking about what it means to be Filipino, what it means to be black, what it means to be Blasian, etc.? Like how, how does how does that fit into your life? You know, I um I have thought extensively uh, about it. 
especially growing up, I uh, I was born in, again, my dad is half black, half Filipino. My mom is full Filipino. Um, they met in the Philippines. My dad was in the Air Force. So eventually, even though I was born in Vegas, he, we were stationed in the, the Philippines for a bit in, in my early uh, life, right? So I learned um, my mom's dialect pretty well, uh, which is Kapangpangan. And um, and I learned some Tagalog also. So we moved from this island, right, of uh, of brown people. And, it, and when I started kindergarten, we uh, we moved to what might be like the the whitest white place in America, Massachusetts. Um, and there's no. I think the whitest place in America is NBC, but maybe then Massachusetts. <laughs> they they might actually be based in Massachusetts then. Uh, but there was no. I think there was like one other uh, person of color uh, in in kindergarten in all of the classes. Uh, and I just felt a lot of that, uh, like true culture shock. Sometimes mm. we talk about like, you know, oh, I was, you know, I was in France and I felt this culture shock because I didn't know how to cross the street or whatever uh, it was. Yeah. But it wasn't until later where I learned uh, like, like culture shock is like, you go through this like cycle of, well, I'm just going to try to assimilate and I'm going to try to downplay, you know, my otherness. And then you like kind of move on to really embracing that otherness and that, so in my case, that Filipino identity, uh, really embracing it. And I did almost, uh, almost militantly. Uh, and then again, just reflecting on, and I think I'd mentioned this before, but like, you know, just kind of reflecting on, like, I'm not really a part of the Filipino community. I'm not really part of the black community. I don't even, I, when I look back, I'm like, I tried so hard to be white that I basically kind of felt white even even growing up hmm does that affect you today uh you, you know just in terms of like you know past childhood trauma in that same way I, you know it's funny because i'm just gonna say this really honestly uh frankly you scan as white sure <laughs> except that you're you know, your brown skin, because I I have interacted with you extensively in almost entirely white uh, uh, contexts. White spaces, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I fit into that in my own funny way. And so, frankly, when I think about you, I think, gosh, Jose did a fantastic job of fitting in to the culture that he was inserted in. And right. so I wonder if now that... You're uh, 45? You're 45 years old? Yep. If you think about that and you wonder, who am I? Or or are you totally okay with it? You're like, hey, listen, everybody, everybody goes through their growing pains and figuring out who they are. Because I don't think I ever perceived you as super alienated either. Like, I, I, I think I think in our white space... Everybody really liked you as one of the white guys, <laughs> and it was just well. I, and I, I'm sure I've, uh, I'm sure for many of those people, I, I was their their token, you know, black friend or brown friend. So I didn't feel alienated. I didn't necessarily feel uh, othered uh, by them. And I think it's probably because I, you know, I'm just not uh, was not threatening. Uh, and again, I tried I tried very hard to to assimilate. I forgot, like I I. I was fluent in Kapangpangan, not anymore, because I, I refused to use it. Right. I literally came home from kindergarten, like, the first week of school and, and asked my dad, um, 
how can I be white? Ice. Or can I be white? Interesting. Gosh, yeah. that's really... Yeah. And I did it, man. I did it. <laughs> I guess, but... Um, yeah. Maybe. I... So, so my point, I, I guess my question is, today, do you feel okay about kind of how you processed your identity as a youth and as a teenager and, and so on? Or do you feel like you were pushed into something? Like, do you feel like you were coerced to be white when you didn't really want that? Like you had an authentic culture, but, you know, white people kind of pushed you to be more white. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I would say either of those. It was just kind of how I responded to to the space that I was in, right? Um, So now I'm like, I've just kind of come to terms with that. Um, You know, when I kind of realize... Yeah, you know, sometimes in my sometime in my late twenties, I'm like, oh, I think I did. I think I identify most with white suburbia, and um, and you know that took a little processing. But now it's like, well, that's just kind of where that's just where I'm at. That's just who that's just who I am. And I still say like, you know, I'm Filipino. Um, I still I still identify as uh, as Asian, um, but again, like maybe not quite as Asian as some of my cousins that's interesting my uh so i'm half chinese and i one of the things about chinese culture is chinese culture is kind of big on assimilation and so there's same for filipinos so there's a funny thing where you're kind of like well isn't it chinese of me to assimilate to white culture Uh. right like how is that that's what chinese people would do chinese in my view and experience are very, very pragmatic, like what works. And so I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, or at least to you, it was about when I was like 20 that I realized I was Chinese. I'd always known I was Chinese, but it was sort of a bit of trivia because I'm half white and I look pretty white. And so fairly rarely did anybody, you know, talk about my being Chinese, except for my name, my, my, my name alerted people. And so, um, I've I've never felt much cultural meaning to being either Chinese or white, and I've sort of always felt like a product of the place that I was born, and so and and learning that I was Chinese actually, you know, learning that I was Chinese was kind of interesting because it helped me understand things about how my family was and so on. But it was more an illumination rather than anything else. It was just like, oh, well, this is why my dad is so focused on me getting good grades, like. Chinese people have always been like that. Like, it's really true. Chinese people are really, really into going to school. And so that kind of thing um, explains something to me. But uh, I, I I wonder about that, you know, what, what the significance is of race um, when it's filtered through kind of your immediate experience. Because it, to me, it felt like my immediate experience, my, my immediate experience was what was important. Um but maybe that diminishes uh, the Chinese piece. But it's funny, you know, even my own Chinese family, like no, nobody ever said you should like try to be Chinese. It was like my, my you know, both my, my, my father and my grandfather both joined the, kind of like you, joined the army. You know, I'm like the American army. And we were sort of focused on being successful in America. That was what we were about. And so... It, I don't know. I, I, I never thought about it. And, and even to this day, maybe because of how I look or other factors, I don't know what it is. I, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around what it means that I'm Chinese. Yeah. So, so you didn't really have like a, 
are wrestling with your identity. Never. Of who you are. You're just like, oh, and also you're trying, it's kind of like, I, I, I imagine it's kind of like, um, you know, white folks when they're like, oh, and you're, you also have some Slovenian in you. you know, 10%, you're 10% Slovenian. You're like, oh, well, what does that mean? Something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I agree. It, it, it never it never seemed like it made a difference in my real life, except, frankly, in the big cultural ways where, like, in retrospect now, I my, my father's focus on school probably benefited my practical life. Like, I wasn't the greatest student, but I sort of kept going to school because dropping out was not an option, like not an option at all, unless, you know, you want to be excommunicated from the family. And so there are these deep themes in being Asian that affected my life, but they were mostly for the positive. And I don't know. So I, I, I've, I've never been able to quite identify any particular themes of race in my own life, even though I'm sure they're there. I have to say, I'm also a little surprised that you weren't told to be more uh, more Chinese. And maybe I'm kind of like in my head, I might be painting a broad brush for for Asians everywhere. But it's because um, I know for um, I know for me, the fact that I couldn't that, that I really couldn't understand my family any, anymore. I could still kind of I know like when my aunties were were talking about me, I knew what they, what they were saying about me. But I didn't I couldn't hmm. speak the language anymore. Um, and like, clearly I was definitely, you know, I was, I was a really Americanized and I felt some, uh, you know, pressure from, from my extended family because of that. Hmm. But the fact that you like, they're like, uh, nobody was telling you like, oh no, you should, you know, be, be more Chinese, eat, eat this food and say these things. Date a nice Chinese girl. Right. Uh, you know, my dad is... Chinese and he married a blonde. And so even that probably pointed me in a certain uh, Caucasian centric direction. It was funny when I got to law school, I remember meeting some actual people born from China and their comment to me was that I was ABC, which was American born Chinese. And then they followed it up with, and that's not really Chinese, but you know, uh -huh. it is what it is. I, that didn't bother me particularly at the time. No, uh, they did not say be more Chinese, but they did say get straight A's. And I never did that. I did, I'd never got the straight A's except one semester. One semester in college, I got straight A's. But besides that, I was pretty much a whole disappointment to my, my Chinese heritage. So, you know, that, that might be it. I do still feel like a disappointment and that might be the most Chinese thing about me. <laughs> And I totally forgot you actually um, you actually tagged uh, Josh Molina and, and Rishi. I sure did. I expect them to respond quickly because who else has made a podcast about your podcast? I mean, you know, I know you guys are basically just out there making money, and I'm talking to Molina and her way. However, what about cultural relevance? Think about the fact that people are making podcasts about your podcast, and I think you guys should come and be guests on what's next weekly it seems like what's next i i i totally agree i i'll be honest with you i was kind of like i was trying to fig figure out like at what point can can we invite them to, to be guests i think we, we kind of have oh. to like work up the uh the rungs a, a little bit <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, I'm going to invite them every time I think of it. Yeah, anyway, point being, uh, my, my Twitter handle is KennyChing6. Excellent. And I'm at, um, I'm at IamJSkinny. Can't change it now. Not going to. Uh, and you can find the show at Twitter at Weekly What's Next. Uh, we'd love to hear if you have comments about your identity uh, or culture shock um, or just trying to figure out who you are because you are um, biracial. Mixed. mixed. Yeah, mixed race. I, I, feel like I'm not, I, feel like, I feel like we've been messing this up, this discussion of, like, of race. I, I was just kind of hoping we would, like, we would do this right. Not much chance of that. Okay. I'm just saying. <laughs>